0: This is the Kratom Science Journal Club with Dr. Jonathan Cachet, neuroscientist and expert in psychopharmacology. In each episode, we discuss an article in a peer-reviewed journal. I'm your host, Brian Gallagher, blog and social media writer for KratomScience.com, your source for all things Kratom. This is the lack of contribution of 7 hydroxymitragenine to the antinosisceptive effects of mitragenine in mice, a pharmacokinetic and pharmacodynamic study. This is University of Florida, a team, and there's now three past Kratom Science guests on this study. Uh, Abhishek nice. Sharma. Uh, Dr. Lance McMahon and Dr. Christopher McCurdy, who we finally I finally got the interview, and he, I put him on the first podcast of the year, so when we put this out, that'll be three episodes ago, I think, and uh, yeah, Dr. McMahon, he's the pharmacodynamics guy, and Abhishek Sharma is the pharmacokinetic guy. And it was actually led by uh, Aaron Bertold and Cheyenne Campbell. I actually contacted both of them to be mm-hmm. on the podcast, but I didn't hear back. But I actually got to talk to Dr. McCurdy about this study a little bit. Basically, a uh, study in mice. I think what they're trying to find out is so we all know that mitraginine metabolizes into 7 hydroxymetragine. I guess what they get did was they took isolated 7-hydroxymitraginine and they took isolated mitraginine and compared the effects and they want to basically see if mitraginine gets its pain relieving effects from that metabolism into 7-hydroxy. So 7-hydroxy is considered the one, like if people were taking that isolated, it would probably be as heavy as you know taking morphine. Although I'm unclear as to whether that's a partial agonist or a full uh-huh. agonist. But uh-huh. what what Doctor McCurdy told me about 7-hydroxy is is it it comes with all the baggage of uh heroin and he even said fentanyl if you would isolate that so they, they're they trying to determine because there was a study earlier i mean we can get into all this but they're trying to determine if it's the seven hydroxy that requires the pain relieving effects and so it,
1: well, you yeah. know i think i would say too that their main their main comparison was um how much of the seven hydroxy is metabolized from Um, That, like, so you if you just take metragenine, we know that some of it gets uh, metabolized into the seven hydroxy. How much is that concentration of the seven hydroxy, and can that concentration of the seven hydroxy account for the uh, the pain effect? So I think that's the main sort of take home from here, and that, and ultimately. Um, there's not enough 7-hydroxymetragenine, or uh, the pain relief is not on the same time profile as just injecting 7-hydroxymetragenine. I think that's where they're they're saying the lack of contribution.
0: They've told me, uh, both Dr. Sharma and McCurdy, um, you know, we were thinking before that there might be 7-hydroxy in the fresh leaf, but they they have told me that they have not found any. Anywhere, Uh, There was like a German team years ago studying it, and they've found barely any 7-hydroxy in the leaves, in the fresh leaf. Uh, Once it becomes dried, then there's like a small amount of that. And then with some of the extracts, uh, there's been, I think there's been some evidence in the past that there are people that are artificially upping the 7-HMG in the extracts. So when we talk about, I guess, you know, natural is more safe. Some people criticize that and say just because it's plant doesn't mean it can't kill you or whatever. But it, but I think in this case, it's you're getting less of the uh, alkaloid 7-hydroxy considered controversial when you're doing a fresh leaf product. Um, but so this shows... So this shows that there are actually aninoseceptive effects with just the metragynine and how it metabolizes. The yeah, and just or... the
1: 7-hydroxy as well. Just the 7-hydroxy okay. also showed the pain-relieving effects. It's it's primarily the 7-hydroxy metragynine that's metabolized from metragynine is not critical to the pain-killing effects. Um yeah, and I mean I think what you mentioned, too, in the controversy, and you, you did well on the, uh, the blog post about this paper as well. So there's a blog post over at creativescience.com, and it, and it sort of leaves people with, you know, take-homes for the Kratom consumer. But I mean, ultimately, um, for people who are trying to prohibit or ban or, you know, make Kratom illegal, uh, they have to have something that they can hold on to that said, like, this is just as bad as morphine or this is just as risky as fentanyl. And I think the seven-hydroxy uh, metragenine is the one that sort of, you know, there was early indications that that was the one that, if it was more potent, that it could potentially, um, you know, be the one that that could lead to an overdose. I don't think there's any evidence of that, but like that's what the prohibition is wrapped onto, and mm-hmm. so it's interesting to hear. You know it's interesting to hear that this group hasn't really necessarily found it in naturally occurring fresh leaf and then we see about um like i think one to two percent of it um in dried leaf but with the extracts mm-hmm. it could be artificially increased um, but ultimately you know i think that maybe the the community bought into this notion that 7-hydroxy is the one that we need to look out for and didn't really pursue any additional research on like, where's this come from when it is metabolized in the body, how much of the the benefits of creatine consumption are, you know, relative to that, except for a study like this. Like, I mean, this is a, this is a pretty significant study that must've taken place over at least a year, but maybe longer. Mm-hmm. Um, and that there were hundreds of mice that they used, and they did the sex differences comparison but ultimately like this is you know it seems like if i could summarize in the layman's terms it's like okay well, everybody just hold on about seven hydroxy and being you know dangerous and we need to be really worried about it there's not really evidence to suggest that this is even behind the beneficial effects or that it's found in naturally occurring uh quantities that would be propose any risk or danger and, and so i'm glad mccurdy's group is Is you know, investigated this because if it was the opposite and it was even more dangerous than we thought, we'd want those results out. But also um, if it's not as dangerous or not as uh, implicated as we may have initially thought, we'd also want those results out.
0: Yeah. And, and I kind of touched on in that blog post about, you know, there was a sheriff in uh, Mississippi and this is, I just, Message with a lady who's an activist down in Mississippi, and this is still going on with this uh, task force that's trying to ban it all over the state, but his claim was uh, in 2019 that Kratom is 13 times more powerful than morphine, so kids have access to morphine simply by buying this at a, in a convenience store, which is all kinds right. of wrong, but what he's doing is right. taking a claim about 7-hydroxymitraginine alone that was from a scientific paper uh and he's saying this is what kratom does and i said well on the other side we have things like in these mouse studies where they say my has low abuse potential so the other side will say look you can't get addicted addicted to kratom because this study said it has a low abuse potential which i think is also an incorrect statement um mm-hmm. but but what we've always talked about, and you call it the entourage effect. Dr. McCurdy calls it like a symphony orchestra. The alkaloids acting together aren't the same as alkaloids acting alone. We've repeated that over and over again on here, but I guess it's worth repeating if somebody's just going to listen to one podcast. But, but you know, McCurdy said if you put the seven hng on full blast, that's going to you know have the have the high opioid you know, stuff, but mitraginine on full blast is not like that. And there was another study that this actually refuted uh, uh, by Krugel in uh, 2019, Krugel et al. And a 2019 study concluded 7-hydroxymitraginine is an active metabolite of mitraginine. And a key mediator of its analgesic effects. I posted an interview with Sharma, and he said that is a drawback because they're not looking at the full metabolism. So, so this actually refuted that to say that, you know, that mytragenin has analgesic effects on its own.
1: Right. Right. Mm-hmm. Well then, yeah. so they had, you know, like blank mouse plasma and blood here and we're, you know, giving known concentrations and putting that into the, into the standalone plasma, but then they also were looking at like lung tissue, liver tissue, brain tissue um, uh, of all of these mice that were dosed at different, uh, different rates and measuring both the metragenine and the seven hydroxy metragyne And so, um, you know, it's, I, it, it took me a while. This, this paper was a bit of an alphabet soup, but it took me a while to understand, like to distinguish between, because the 7-hydroxymetraginine in and of itself alone has analgesic effects. And you can find a dose of 7-hydroxymetraginine that is roughly equivalent to the metraginine. It's about half of what the metragenine is roughly, or like a third. Um, so it's not to say that in and of itself, it doesn't have uh, analgesic effects. It's just not, maybe not a key mediator and the metabolite, the, the metabolism of the two 2,7 hydroxy metragenine is not the key active metabolite um, of how metragenin produces its effects. It, it's not, mm-hmm. it's not necessary.
0: And so in terms of drug development, which I think, you know, eventually they want to do down there. We also talked about it on that a um, couple of episodes ago um, with Dr. McCurdy. Um, is this looking good for mitragenine as a maybe a lower risk opioid? Um, and, and is that kind of is that what you think, like the ultimate thing they're pushing towards is, is trying to uh, m- measure the safety profile of like a a pure mitragenine maybe um pain relieving Mm -hmm. relieving drug yeah
1: yeah yeah um i mean so if they were if they were going to be turning mitragenine into a pharmaceutical that would be used to treat like opiate use disorder or opiate withdrawal Mm -hmm. um I, i think that before this big study there could have been concerns or voiced you know it's kind of like the sheriff of mississippi but they could have said well the mitragynine is not active by itself it's turning into this seven hydroxy and that's way more dangerous and it's not really helping people off opiates it's just giving them another opiate that's just as powerful if not more powerful than morphine um, but this this is saying that, it, and it sounds like if you were to develop it into a pill, that you could make a mitragynine pharmaceutical that was just mitragynine by itself. Um, and you wouldn't have to worry about the 7-hydroxy uh, being metabolized in a high concentration.
0: It says, here we investigated the hot plate and in a succession pharmacokinetics tissue distribution mice to determine the extent to which 7-hydroxy metabolized from mitragynine. Counts for the antinociceptive
1: so then the sex differences as well so they have that you know like male female um comparison which is you know it's it's always interesting in i think pain research in particular you know there are hormonal genetic uh, chemical differences like receptor density differences between males and females and generally what you find is like Either I guess there are only two options. Sex either does have an effect and changes the result or it doesn't. But I felt like it was sort of like weird places where it didn't have a result in this paper. And then some other ones where it did have a result. Or like mm-hmm. a, a behavioral manifestation.
0: Because we all we know that, you know, the alcohol in terms of alcohol tolerance and everything. Is this like a regular thing that they would study male and female in sort of maybe like drug development?
1: yeah yeah i mean so it would it's it has to be considered we just know that it is i mean so one of the differences here was like the concentration of the seven hydroxy or just the metragene in the brain tissue was i think two times higher in males than it was in females um but it, that was <laughs> producing the same behavioral outcome so like increasing the amount of time that the, the mice could keep their tails on the hot plate um so it was equivalent behavioral effects but uh 2x difference in the concentration and so you know just from a concentration perspective yeah like dosing properly um you know there are all sorts of factors that like we 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 consider humans to be the same but sex sex comes up as as a major difference and you know i don't remember what study it was actually the the wise tale about this but like essentially there are some drugs that don't work in men but only work in women and like in the drug development pipeline, scientists get to the point where they're like super baffled that, well, this is the 30th time we've run these experiments in the mice. Why would it just all of a sudden not work now? And then it, it goes down to, you know, can come down to sex. And then you also have to keep track of like the, the menstrual cycles because the hormonal mm-hmm. changes there. Like, I'm sure any woman could tell us that there is a difference uh, across the course of the, you know, those 30 days in terms of how they feel and how they're thinking. Um but the one thing I want to mention in closing on the sex differences with the, with the mice is they also were talking about like drug metabolism studies in beagles. And someone was looking at uh, how mitragyny was metabolized or like how long it was over what time course. Generally, they look over like four hours. And in the beagles, it was like the exact opposite of what they saw in the mice in terms of an increased concentration in the male brain versus the female brain Um, in the beagles i think that the females ended up having more or something like that it wasn't like wasn't jumped into deeper but you know there are not only sex differences within species but there's also differences across species and it might not be what you you know would initially or logically assume or hypothesize
0: yeah here i found it in female beagle dogs the auc ratio what's what is that AUC In female beagle dogs, the AUC ratio of 7-hydroxymetraginine to mitragenine was 13%, 1.4-fold greater than found in female mice, indicating that concentrations of free 7-HMG might be greater in dogs and have more potential to influence the overall pharmacology of MTG. So mm-hmm. would that extrapolate maybe to humans uh maybe you know since there's a difference between mice and dogs would there be a difference between there
1: certainly could be yeah right you can't rule it out and i mean i think for the longest time scientific research has been sort of plagued by you know um, masculine um, perspective um and really like you know when you start learning about experimental design and stuff in undergrad What the teachers say sort of jokingly is like, well, we know a lot about undergrads because they're the test subjects of all these psychological experiments that are being ran on college campuses. It doesn't necessarily (laughs) mean that it it converts to the entire population. So, you know, I would say really just within the last 50 years, the careful uh, monitoring and paying attention to these uh, sex differences has has changed how drug development uh, occurs and moves forward, certainly.
0: Yeah and and that, that's another reason not to go on the internet and and take advice from some random dude about how much you should take and and you know people should be saying this is how much I take
1: that you know that would have to be a study and it's like <coughs> essentially they're still they're still having the same behavioral level of effects like the percent of time that the latency increase on the hot plate was the same, even though it was a difference in uh, concentration. And so maybe that goes to speak to something about the receptor density. And I think we know, I think we know that there's like a a genetic change in redheads that also leads to them, like generally leading more opiates than, than the general population and that's the way it has to really? be the way that it's metabolized i think yeah so i think it, it's i guess it's known or you know it, it maybe it started as a joke or just supplanted the joke but like redheads can take more pain than uh normal folk but that means they need more opiates in order to achieve the same amount of pain relieving activity um
0: ah, that's my that's why my wife can uh, <laughs> hang with uh, opiates I guess. Yeah. I don't know. I've Perhaps. No, never... nah, I mean, she's only taken the one prescribed, so we haven't really experimented with that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> yeah,
0: she's a total ginger.
1: So depending on the study that they were performing, they either housed the mice in um, uh, five per cage or four per cage. And they were doing they were trying to make sure that the administration of the metragynine did not have some non-specific like behavioral effects or inhibition on behavior. Like taking more of it just causes an overall increase in, um, alertness or awareness. Like you're getting lazy or you're tired or you're more tired. And so they were looking at overall locomotor activity and it just caught my eye how high those counts were. So like, um, They were using, so they're talking about just like activity and movement and 200 some odd events over the time period that they were looking at. And it. it, I think that when we were studying the zebrafish, like if you look at the total distance traveled versus the number of times that like behavior was initiated or started, I think that that ultimately like is two different measures of behavioral inhibition or activation. And so it's not a big point, but I just, I scrolled past one of the notes that I made about, um, how they were counting those activity movements and the overall locomotor activity. And it wasn't entirely clear to me. I'm curious. Did, did he mention, did you guys talk about that at all? Like did they have video cameras in the home cages or were there light beam breaks?
0: No, we didn't get, we didn't get that far into it, but, uh, I wonder, like, you know, the whole rat park experiment, I-, I wonder, like, why don't scientists, like, put them in a rat park ever and, and then test them, test, like, happy, normal uh, rats for drug effects? Is, is it because... Maybe it's only a comparison anyway. So they're if they're all in the similar environment, you know, yeah, come so out. Yeah. So what
1: you're talking about rat park, you're like yeah. a, an enriched environmentally enriched, socially yeah. rich um, environment. And I think that the studies you're referring to are essentially that like animals going through drug withdrawal or drug self-administration um, administer less drugs if they're in a enriched, socially um, supported environment. And so I think you. You know, why don't we all just give them all enrichment and, and do that? Well, so yeah, you would have to do it for all of the mice in the study, right? Mm-hmm. And they all have to be held at the same um, conditions. And I mean, okay. they even go into moving um, moving the mice out of the vivarium at this school into the experimental room. And it was still it was on a similar light cycle, the temperature and humidity were relatively yeah, equivalent. Um, so it would cost more, I and mean, it only already costs dollars a day to maintain just one mouse. Um, yeah. But ultimately, you know, these the the cages that they're storing these in on a, just in a normal study are not like they're not being deprived of anything. Like there are there are particular experiments where you set up like you know there's no bedding, there's um, no like you know sometimes you put a little like toilet paper roll in there to have a little tunnel that they can crawl in on, or. They're they're putting um, dividers in between the mice to purposely isolate them and separate them. So, you know, ultimately, I think it would be fair to say, as long as they're all being treated the same, that these mice are just sort of in the normal, you know, quote unquote, whatever normal mouse living housing activity is, they're not being deprived, nor are they being specifically enriched. Um, Mm -hmm. And in a study like this, when we're looking at hundreds of mice um, over the course of uh, that time, like introducing another variable like environmental enrichment would just, it would just complicate the analysis so much more beyond like the analytical chemistry that they're doing and and through their behavior and sex differences.
0: Yeah. I I mean, yeah, I guess if they were free to like be in different parts of the thing, then it would completely change. Uh, Mm Yeah, throw too many variables in it. I think you explained it, but what I what I was talking about. Well, there's if if anybody's curious, more curious, so you look up rat park and and the idea was that um there was a rat park experiment where they created instead of in cages, they created like an environment where rats could be happy and have social contact uh, contact, and they were less likely to use. I think. Cocaine or 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 morphine, mm-hmm. uh, because and the conclusion was, you know, when people are more social, uh, uh, they live in a better environment rather than having uh, all the stresses of maybe like modern life or poverty or you know even being in prison. Uh, you're less likely to abuse drugs because that's the only you have more options for. Uh happiness essentially but yeah i understand why they they wouldn't do that um yeah that was just just a general question
1: so i mean they weren't enriched they weren't deprived It just sort of headed the middle middle and held the same and and like i said you know one of the biggest one of the biggest costs is just keeping those mice alive in the vibarium. is several dollars per mouse per day. It was one of the reasons why we spent so much time developing the zebrafish model is because it costs mm-hmm. way different. You know, it was much less to keep them alive.
0: Yeah, yeah, and that's why everybody should write NIDA and tell them to give uh, everybody, uh, give people studying the drugs more money. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <clears throat> really, do you ever want to talk about your lab on on the show or? That your work well, the cannabis lab, yeah,
1: uh, sure, yeah. I mean, it's going well. We, we yeah. uh, we're moving along now to um, setting up the instrumentation, right? So, we have the uh, ICPMS for heavy metals, we have the um, the psyx LCMS for pesticides, and then the HPLCs for potency. And so, you know, we just have finished off essentially what was a, a giant construction effort over the last couple months, if not, you know, s- half a year. Um, and so now we're moving on to like more of the specific outfitting of the cannabis lab with uh, instrumentation and, and equipment for actually doing the laboratory work. Um, so we're moving along.
0: So this is in Columbus? Mm-hmm. Columbus, Ohio. Yeah. Yeah. And so you'll just be like studying cannabis. Is that like basically well, so it's, more-
1: it's a, it's a licensed third-party testing lab. And so one of the, you know, one of the main differences between the, the black market and a, and a regulated market is that um, you, you know, you, the products have to be safe for consumption. And so we test for heavy metals, we test for pesticides, we test for molds and mildew and fungus. We examine um, samples for, like any foreign matter, like indications of a bug infestation or like hair or other, you know, just stuff from the physical environment. And so, yeah, essentially we're testing to make sure that it's safe. There's nothing in the products that could harm, especially an immunocompromised individual, but then also like you want to know the potency and, and, you know, for the longest time in just a black market, uh, cannabis situation, like you don't know that, It's 15 or 23 or 25 or 30 percent THC. Um, So, you know, every patient has the right to being informed about what they're consuming and then also that to know that it's safe. And so that's what we're we're open will be my second lab in Ohio um, that's doing cannabis safety testing for the medical program here.
0: That's that's awesome, because um, we're talking about um, uh, this guy uh, Soren Shade. I've I've had him on a couple times, but uh, his company is, did like a full alkaloid profile on on uh, some kratom that they grew. And um, he's, I think he's working with the lab, and they're doing like a research project um, uh, with the university. So I don't know if he had funding for that, but he's. It would be great if, you know, everybody who bought kratom, like I buy my, buy my medical marijuana, and it goes through a lab like you're setting up there, and mm-hmm. I get all my. Cannabinoids list, and it would be great if people started to be able to get their full alkaloid list on uh, on kratom. Yeah, certainly.
1: I mean, it's one of the biggest parts of this study, and the supplemental
0: figures was all of
1: the validation that they had to do. Um, <clears throat> so they were. Examining different neuro, like different biological tissue, whether it was like brain or lung, for example, and then they wanted to ensure that when they were measuring measuring for metagenin or the seven hydroxy that it was valid. Like they weren't um, they weren't measuring something else or like parts of something else, and so. They're in the cannabis space, despite the medical cannabis being around for some time, like the laboratory methods are not even standardized from lab to lab in cannabis. I mean, a lot of that has to do with different matrices and the lack of validation. So, like, you can imagine that... Uh, both a hard candy and a brownie are both edibles, but they're like fundamentally made up of different things. And that's what the matrix is. So it's the difference between lung tissue versus brain tissue would be a hard candy versus uh, a brownie. And so, you know, there are, I think a few uh, creative product manufacturers who put Information about how many like milligrams of mitragynine or 7-hydroxy are in or on their products. Yeah, but it's certainly it's certainly not as specific. Like in cannabis, it's all batch. Specific, so every fifteen pounds in Ohio we have to test for potency, yeah, whereas like in the in the in the unregulated kratom world, the testing that's done like maybe they measured it four times, picked the highest number, and that was four years ago, right, and so they're just assuming that it's the same,
0: um, <laughs> yeah, and it was with so one yeah, was- one little sample from uh you know two thousand kilos or something. <laughs>
1: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Their first run before the machines were, you know, worn in and broken down. And so, yeah, I think, you know, uh, safety testing and being informed about what you're consuming is one of the, one of the benefits of regulation. Um, it can also lead to increased costs. Like you were mentioning, like about a thousand dollars per strain to get it tested, to get it tested in a cannabis lab. You know, that's, it's a little high, but it's, it's roughly about what that, what that is. If you're talking about, Heavy metals, pesticides, funguses, molds—you know all of the. I think there's ten or eleven target analyte classes that you're looking at, um, and it's interesting. At least you know these are also things that are tested in corn and soybeans and other stuff that you would just see um, growing around the state. But in in the cannabis market, like you know the the grows want their stuff tested uh, yesterday for uh, for free is what we usually say, um, whereas like testing for pesticides like or corn um, will take like three weeks and definitely cost $1,000 dollars. And so there's just some interesting sort of like commercial capitalistic forces that come into play in these cannabis labs to where you know you also have to be worried about labs artificially increasing the THC or the potency of, of products because increases in THC correlate directly to a higher price point at the, at the retail outlet, at the dispensary. And so um, THC inflation and lab shopping by the grows um, or the processors, like going around, giving the same product to four different labs, and then just selecting the lab that gives them the highest THC number. That would be lab shopping. Um, (laughs) Oh, really? Certainly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's hilarious. It's it's widespread.
0: Yeah. uh, And I think I know a company that does it because I have, I'm not going to call them out or anything. I don't want any trouble. But um, Um, there's this indica that i have 20 percent thc and this stuff is like really dry and everybody online i'm in the pennsylvania medical marijuana group on reddit and everybody's like yeah this brand sucks it looks like like when i open it up it looks like crappy like old oh, weed that. it's like because i don't smoke that much so i'll have an eighth for like three months and it looks like the third month <laughs> So, when I bought it, and and it's an Indica, but it has like a 20% THC, and I'm like, that doesn't not... It's okay for me, because I like mild, but it Uh seems like maybe there might be some lab shopping going on there.
1: (laughs) For sure, for sure. If you look at the numbers in Ohio, we have the most number of strains reported over 30 percent THC of any state in the U.S. And that's primarily due to THC inflation and lab shopping. It's one of the reasons why the state opened up to um, new applications for opening up additional labs, because at at one point there was only three labs in the state with 90 percent of the testing being done by one lab in particular. And so by opening up to other labs, there's more options and. Um, more ways to hold each the labs accountable for for the numbers they're putting out. So yeah, it was a you know it was a big deal, i would say 2019, 2020 where um, a lot of us in the lab space were trying to work with the state to understand like you know you can only fix your instruments quote unquote so many times before you start like getting skeptical of what the results that a lab's putting out repeatedly over and over again.
0: Do you think there's ever, there's going to be like for Kratom, maybe like, I don't know if this is even possible, but like a test strip for maybe certain things like there's fentanyl test strips.
1: Um, so like that would test for, I mean, so those, those, those strips, um, immunoassays, like commercialized immunoassays assays are good for like present, not present not necessarily um, for like quantifying the amount. So like 10% um, THC versus 20% THC is difficult to measure with the tests that you could like do on the roadside if you were a law enforcement officer. So for creative, I mean, you could – Right now you could test the product for like, does this have any fentanyl or opiate analogs in it? And it shouldn't. Um, You could also test to make sure what it did have metragenine present or not present, uh, maybe the 7-hydroxy. But as, you know, as this paper sort of laid out, it's it's naturally occurring, uh, concentrations are so low. So I don't know. I mean, it, it, it would have to be from a safety perspective, like, is this kratom or is this not kratom? And, you know, they have tests like that for ecstasy, for cocaine, for some of the other festival drugs. Okay. Um, And I think there, you know, there are labs, I know that there's at least two labs in Michigan who are testing Kratom products. And at least, you know, the nice thing, at least uh, with those labs in in Michigan is that consumers can take the product to the lab and say, hey, can you test this? Whereas right now in Ohio, um, the only people that can request tests are the growers and the cultivators and the dispensaries. So like, in your situation, where you got uh, a product that you know seemed subpar and not necessarily um, you know matching what you saw in the test results, you could take that to a cannabis lab and get it tested again. In Ohio, you can't do that right now.
0: It might be because there's only a few labs that even do that for for kratom. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So
1: if you were talking about mitragynine
0: in terms of costing a thousand dollars per strain
1: to test kratom. Yeah, I mean, the, the standards that are available, so like getting pure metragenine or pure 7-hydroxy-metragenine, and then calibrating, using those standards to calibrate your instruments so that you can accurately, like, you know, measure it again in a test sample, are, are hundreds, if not thousands, of dollars. And it's so, um, it's not widespread. Like, even in cannabis, like getting THC or THCV. You know, getting certified reference material or standards for that—you know, there could be. There was maybe two companies in the U.S. that could do it. There's more now; um, the market's caught up. But I would certainly think with kratom, the market demand isn't really there for the testing labs to mm-hmm. justify, like you know, setting up a lab that would just do just do kratom.
0: Did you see this article about uh, study finds? compounds prevent cannabis compounds prevent infection by COVID-19 virus this was in Forbes yeah, a, and it was yeah, uh, that. was ahead. CBGA and CBDA they're saying they prevent COVID from entering the uh, cells or something like that did you see that
1: yeah yeah so I saw I definitely saw the headlines you know I made it across a couple of group texts this morning cannabinoids Prevent, yeah, the transmission of SARS into, like, to allow it to infect cells. Um, I did, I didn't see it beyond the headline. It's interesting if it, if it is CBG. What you're saying, CBG and CBDA. It's CBDA
0: and CBGA. And at the end of the article, yeah, at the end of the article, they even say, well, it's not available if you buy CBD or they're produced by the hemp plant as precursors to cbd and cbg however they are different from the acids and are not contained in hemp products so yeah
1: so the acidic forms are found in in hemp products you can get one that has high cbda Okay. There's a term called decarboxylation, and that's the, ter- the from THCA to delta nine THC or THCA to delta ten THC. So that's when you add heat, it decarboxylates. Um, and so, yeah, you can certainly find products like CBD products that haven't been decarboxylated and and have CBDA in them or THCA in them. and no, I guess not from hemp. Um, and CBG is like what they would call the mother cannabinoid or the parent cannabinoid, in that like. It's CBG is the first cannabinoid synthesized before getting it converted over to CBD or THC. Um, But it's true in that it's difficult to find products that have high concentrations and by high, high concentrations are about like, you know, above 10% of these, minor cannabinoids but uh, you know ultimately they these, these products are on their way and you better believe that all of the grows and across the u.s across the world are doing r&d to increase the concentrations of other cannabinoids found in the plant
0: that i mean and that's just one study one article uh mm-hmm. so get vaccinated please <laughs> thank you Dr. Jonathan That's Cachet right. check him out on social media at Cachet. none of the content in this or any episode of Creative Science Journal Club was intended or should be taken as medical claims or medical advice please consult a medical professional so far we don't advertise we don't ask for donations but we do ask that you share this podcast on your social media give us a rating like Subscribe, comment. The music is Captain Big Wheel. The song is called Moon Runner. Kratom Science Journal Club is produced by me, Brian Gallagher, for KratomScience.com. Take care.